I will tell you, my friends, today that we are closer than ever to Jesus coming again. And I will remind you this morning to continue to pray for our friends in Israel, but also understand that God has a plan and purpose for everything that happens in this world. And that plan and purpose is headed to the day when the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who remain will be caught up in the air with him to meet him in there, and there we will be with the Lord always. What a wonderful promise that is. And as we sang that song, that uh, those words just uh, uh, came into my heart, knowing that we have a hope that the world doesn't have. And we are assured of that hope today, and we give God praise this morning. As I was reading this week and looking for different things to place in this message, I read of Donald Miller's book entitled, Searching for God Knows What. Very interesting title, right? But Miller took the point of the title of his book, and he, he really expounded on the title, and he tells a story about speaking to a class in a Christian college. And Miller stood in front of the class and announced that he was going to share the gospel with them with one difference. He was going to leave out one critical element. And he wanted them to tell him at the end of the presentation of the gospel what element he left out. So Miller proceeded to describe the rampant sin that plagues our culture and how sin separates us from God. He tells them that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And he talked about how sin separates us from God. He went on to describe the beauty of living a moral life. And then he spoke of the promise of heaven and its beauty for those who chose to grasp and take hold of the gospel message. Finally, he shared the importance of repentance and went into detail on how they could be saved if they could tell, uh, if they could understand repentance and how they need to repent from their sins and turn to the one and only Savior. Miller said that he finished presenting the gospel. He asked the class if they could tell him what it was that he left out of the gospel message. He said that he waited for several awkward minutes and then not a single hand was raised telling him what was missing. Because you see, no one could identify the missing component of the gospel he just presented. As far as the students could tell, Miller had been complete in sharing the gospel. And closing his case, he writes in his book, Searching for God Knows What. Here's what he writes. I presented a gospel to Christian Bible students and left out Jesus. Nobody noticed. Even when I said I was going to neglect something very important, even when I asked them to think very hard about what it was I left out, no one could tell me. And Miller concludes, and I quote, to a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they are morally pure or that they understand some theological ideas or that they are very spiritual on their own, it appears that Jesus becomes completely unnecessary. He says, at best, Jesus is an afterthought, a technicality by which we become morally pure, unquote. I believe that Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel message. In fact, he is the gospel message. 
And without him in the gospel, it becomes just merely a gospel that becomes all about what we can do to earn salvation and nothing what he has done to provide it. It's no wonder that Peter, in his message at Pentecost about Jesus' death and resurrection, concluded his thoughts. And here's what he says in Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our all in all. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word this morning for the power of your word, for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it and and then apply the words to our hearts and lives. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just literally take over this place this morning. And Father, as we read and study your word, may it become a, a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path, so that, Father, we can do what you tell us to do in your word. Father, help us to be obedient in all that we hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we continue our sermon series on the book of Hebrews, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Because in this passage, we're going to discover this morning that Jesus is our all in all. And the question comes from many in the world today. You hear them asking this question. How is it that you know that Jesus is, in fact, our all in all? Why isn't Buddha our all in all? Why isn't Muhammad our all in all? Why isn't Joseph Smith our all in all? Why should we believe that? What qualifies Jesus as our all in all? I want to remind you this morning that the book of Hebrews was written for Jews who had a hard time in their lives, giving up the Jewish law, giving up the Jewish rituals, giving up the Jewish ceremonies to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. And recall last week, the lingering question among the Jews was, how could this man be greater than the angels? How could this Jesus be greater than the prophets? How could this Jesus be greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the law? Yet he was a man and he died. I mean, how could he be the promised Messiah and die a cruel death on the cross? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. Paul put it this way. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now listen very carefully. We as Gentiles had an easier time believing that Jesus is our Messiah. You know why? Because the Jews, who are God's called people, who are God's called nation, who are still called God's people and God's chosen nation, they thought they had it all together, right? I mean, if they just obeyed the law and the ceremonies and believed in God, that's all they needed. And they had a difficult time releasing themselves or being released from the law, right? Being released from uh, the rituals and the ceremonies of Jewish law. They had a difficult time doing that. I mean, they came to know Christ, but they also wanted to come along and add the law and the ceremonies and the rituals to Jesus. 
But you know what we as Gentiles were doing? We were worshiping false gods. We were worshiping false idols. So when Jesus came along, it was much easier for the Gentiles to believe, right? Because they, they were not the, we're not the chosen nation of God. We weren't chosen and given a covenant by God. They were. And that's why it was difficult for the Jews to believe that this Jesus could come and that he's Messiah and that they could leave all that behind them and follow him. So this morning, what qualifies Jesus as Messiah? We examine five reasons that Jesus is our all in all. And this is an exciting verse of Scripture. Get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. This is some good stuff that the writer of Hebrews is about to give to us. Here's what he says. Number one, Jesus is our all in all because he became our substitute. Now, we looked at verse 9 last week as we closed the message. But I want to go back to it and investigate it a little bit more. And so here's what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, Jesus, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And I want to look at it because it was Jesus who became our substitute. It was Jesus who took our place on the cross. It was Jesus who said, I'll die for them. I will pay the price of God's wrath. I will become sin for them, and I will pay the price for their sins. That's why it says here that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And it refers to the fact, of course, that God through Christ became a man so that he could die. In other words, he was born fully man, but also at the same time, he was fully God. Someone put it this way. Those tiny hands in the manger of Bethlehem, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made to take two nails. Those little feet in that manger of Bethlehem were made to climb a hill and be nailed to a cross. That little head, sacred head that it was, in Bethlehem in that manger that night, was made to wear a crown of thorns, and that tender body wrapped in swaddling clothes was made to be pierced by a spear. The fact is, folks, Jesus was born to die. In other words, Bethlehem was for Calvary. Jesus' death was the farthest thing from an accident. It wasn't an accident. And despite the evil that crucified Jesus, his death wasn't really a tragedy. It was God's ultimate plan for his son and his ultimate gift for mankind, for you and I. And though for that purpose, Jesus became lower than the angels, he accomplished what no other angel could have ever accomplished. Jesus suffered death on behalf of everyone. In other words, he died in your place. He died in my place. We deserve the cross. Jesus did not. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve hell. But instead, Jesus said, I'll take your place. I'll die for you. I will take all the sin and all the sin of all the world upon myself so that you can have a relationship with my Father in heaven. 
Because without it, we have no relationship with God. And he did it because of our sins. You see, sin brings death. You remember in Genesis, in the book of Genesis chapter 2, when when Moses, I'm with Moses, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, right? When Adam was in the garden with God, and God said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of all the other trees, but do not touch that tree. For surely, if you touch it, you will die. Remember that? God's curse upon mankind. And soon after that, Adam and Eve learned it the hard way. Because of their disobedience, they died. You see, death is a part of what happens when we sin. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. In other words, left to our own devices, left to our own resources, we have no prospect but to die. But God had a divine plan to redeem and rescue all of us, a substitute to take the punishment of man on himself. And I will say, say this to you, if you choose to be born again, and if you choose to follow Jesus, you accept him as your substitute on the cross. If you do not do that, and you decide to pay the consequences of your sins yourself, you will face judgment, eternal judgment, in a place called hell. You see, you either die and live forever, or you die and live forever in a place called hell. Die and live forever in heaven, die and live forever in hell. It's up to you. It's your choice. That's why it's so very, very important, folks, to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to be born again, to be changed from the inside out. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus, in his death, purposed to die as a substitution for everyone. And what was the point? Why did he suffer at all? It was by grace. In other words, we deserved what was death. We, we, we deserved what he received. But by the grace of God, we received salvation, something we really didn't deserve. And what prompts us to understand the grace of God? It's the love of God behind that. Solely on the basis of his love for everyone, Jesus suffered and died, and through his grace, we are saved. Jesus had a choice, did he not? John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. And the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God. Did you notice that? We didn't love God first. He loved us first. We were enemies of God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. By the way, that word propitiation, I want you to say about ten times, you'll get tongue-tied every time. 
Propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. In other words, Jesus propitiated or satisfied the wrath of God for us. All the wrath of God that's poured upon our Lord. He's our substitute. The great Lutheran reformer, Martin Luther, once said, Learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. It's a great quote from Martin Luther. Jesus is our all in all because he is our substitute. Secondly, Jesus is our all in all because he was the author of our salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. The Bible says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, I want to tell you that phrase, that little phrase, it was fitting, means that what God did through Jesus Christ was consistent with the character of our Heavenly Father. It was, first of all, consistent with His wisdom. I mean, the cross, even though it was a cruel, horrible death, was really a masterpiece, demonstrating the very wisdom of God. You see, God solved the problem of man's sin that no human or angel could have ever solved. Paul confirms God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Secondly, not only was it consistent with his wisdom, it was consistent with God's holiness. You see, it was in the cross that God demonstrated how much he hates sin and how sin has separated us from the Heavenly Father. Thirdly, it was consistent with God's power. It was by far the greatest display, would you agree, of power ever manifested. Jesus endured the horrible sufferings, and as a man could have given up, and he could have, because he was also God, he could have called 10,000 angels to his rescue. But the power of God was shown through his endurance. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was consistent with God's wisdom. It was consistent with God's holiness. It was consistent with God's power. It was also consistent with God's love. John 3.16, everyone knows that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And fifth, not only was it consistent with his wisdom, with his holiness, with his power, with his love, it was consistent with his grace. Grace. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You know what it means to be rich, right? Did you hear that? The riches of his grace. That means he has a lot of grace, right? I mean, sometimes when we're doing something or thinking about something in this life, 
we just say to ourselves, Lord, just zap them. Take them out. Man, they're not doing anything for anybody. But it's because of the riches of his grace that they're not taken out. Because God wishes for no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's his desire. That's the heart of our God. And he waits and waits and waits. And sometimes people wait too long to follow him. And they have to go off into punishment themselves. But listen, God is waiting, right? He is waiting for our president to hit his knees and call upon the name of Jesus. He said, I don't like him. Listen, God loves him. God loves him. He said, well, how can that be? Oh, yes, God loves him. Listen, God is waiting patiently for those to come to repentance so that they will miss hell and gain heaven. And that is God's love for us. That's God's grace for us. The Greek word translated, by the way, I like the word in my translation in the New American or the New King James Version, it's captain. I like the word author. Because it means pioneer, it means leader. And, and it always refers to someone who involves others in their endeavor. It, it was commonly used, the, the word, uh, for a pioneer who blazed a trail for others to follow. In other words, the captain or the author never stood at the rear giving orders. He was always out front leading and setting the example. You see, Jesus, I believe, is the author of our salvation. He is the one, he is why we call him our all in all. As the supreme author, he's always the perfect leader, always the perfect example. Jesus, you see, lived for us a pattern of perfect obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is also setting the standard and the pattern for suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. That means, listen folks, that as a Christian, as those who really follow Jesus, you are going to be opposed by the world. You're going to be opposed by people around you. You're not going to be welcomed by the world. You're not going to be welcomed by people around you. You're not going to be welcomed by those who do not know Christ. You're going to suffer. And listen, we may suffer persecution one day. In fact, I think already we're the minority in America, and we're already suffering persecution for our faith. They're trying to take everything away from us. But I will tell you this, Jesus reigns supreme. Jesus is our author. He sets the standard and the pattern for our suffering. And also as our author, Jesus defeated death through his glorious resurrection. The fact is that death is no longer an enemy to fear for those in Christ. But instead, death is the way to eternal life. The author of our salvation, Jesus, has already promised us in John 14, 19, because I live, you shall also live. Do you believe that? I will tell you the world's ultimate question is, has anyone ever cheated death? To which the Bible replies, yes, Jesus Christ. And the second most important question is this, if he did, did he leave the way open for me? And again, the Bible responds with a definite yes. All, everyone, 
All you have to do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I will tell you that when we are born again, we can say confidently with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? As the great author of our salvation, Jesus says in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, listen to this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Have you ever thought about that? You will never die. You will never die. I was thinking this week that not only is Jesus the author of our salvation, he's the author of us as well. He's the author of our very, very being. That brought to mind the story about a little boy who made a sailboat with his own hands. And he took it out to the lake to test it out. And he placed the sailboat into the water. And everything seemed to be going really fine that day until a strong wind began to push the sailboat further and further out over to the other side of the lake. Well, the little boy went to the other side of the lake and looked and looked and looked for his sailboat, yet it wasn't anywhere to be found. He began to weep because he had lost the very sailboat he had created with his very hands. One day, the story goes that the boy was walking by the pawn shop in town, and to his surprise, he saw his little sailboat that he had made with his own hands in the window of the store with a price tag on it. The boy was so excited, he rushed into the pawn shop and said to the manager, Sir, listen, that's my sailboat in the window. I thought of it. I designed it. I made it with my own hands. It is mine. And the manager kind of laughed and said, Listen, I'm sorry, son, but that boat belongs to me. And if you want it back, you're going to have to buy it back from me. The boy was so upset, he ran home, got his piggy bank, got everything he had in his piggy bank, ran back to the pawn shop and said to the manager, here is everything I have and all that you demanded. Please give me back my little sailboat. And when the manager gave the little boy his sailboat, he was so happy. As he walked out the pawn shop door, he was heard saying out loud so all could hear around him, my little sailboat, you are twice mine. The first time I made you with my own hands, the second time I paid for you and bought you back with everything I had. You are all mine. You are twice mine. You and I, I remind you, were created by God. In our mother's womb, he formed us and made us. But then, after we were born, we sailed away into sin, drifting away from him. But aren't you glad that Jesus came and became the author of our salvation by dying on a cross and paying for our sins? He bought us back with his blood from sin and from Satan and from the bondage of sin. And now Jesus can say, you, 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 you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you back with my blood from the cross of Calvary. Jesus is our all in all because he is the author of our salvation. Thirdly, Jesus is our all in all because he became our sanctifier, making us righteous. 
And I like this verse because, listen, it's very interesting to me that from our own perspective, it's difficult to think of ourselves as holy. It's difficult to think of ourselves as righteous. How many of you know today that you are holy? Nobody raises their hand. I'm, uh, I'm not righteous. What are you talking about, Pastor? In fact, this morning, if I called you what God's Word calls you, you might think I'm out of my mind. But the Bible is clear and repeats the fact several times that we who are in Christ are saints. We're saints. Now listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It's confession time today. I know that you guys are okay when you're driving. That If someone cuts you off, you don't get angry or mad. You just say, well, God bless you and wave at them. I've seen some of you drive. You drive nice. The other day I was driving back from Floresville, and I do not like people, although I did it once, I've repented from my sins, driving in the left lane slow. Now, if that was you, I've got to forgive you. But don't drive in the left lane slow when I'm trying to go someplace. Right? Here's this car. just Well, I became fleshly. I, I do that sometimes. I don't know about y'all. Y'all, y'all probably don't ever do anything like that. But I, I became fleshly. And, and I started thinking bad things about that person driving that car. And it wasn't right. And I was saying, get out of my way, right? i got to go someplace. Don't you understand? And God says, look what you're doing. Look what you're doing. Ah. But get in the right lane when you're driving slow. And listen. I am not perfect. My wife can testify to that. After over 40 years of marriage, and she can tell you a lot of things, I'm not perfect. I am far from it. I struggle with sin as you struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation as you struggle with temptation. I am just like you. I've just been called as your pastor for whatever reason God had. I'm glad I was called, but I'll tell you, I struggle just like you struggle. And I want you to understand that because I make mistakes sometimes as your pastor. I don't, I don't make decisions sometimes that you agree with. And, and sometimes there's a little friction going on. But listen, I struggle in the flesh. And you do too. But I want you to understand, we are called saints. How can that be if I'm struggling in the flesh? If I wanted somebody to move over and I was getting mad about that, how can that be? It's because Jesus has sanctified us every day. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Paul says to the church of God, which is in Corinth. By the way, as you guys know, the church of Corinth was all messed up. You know why? Because every church is messed up. Right? To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He said, well, pastor, I don't feel much like a saint. And I sure don't act like a saint if you've been around me. But it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you act as long as you repent and come back to God. But you and I are saints because of what Jesus did on the cross and our profession of faith in him. That's why we are called saints. That's why we are called righteousness. That's why when we stand before Jesus one day, 
He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we haven't done anything, Lord. No, no, but Jesus did. Because you see, I've got his righteousness, not my own. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in Christ, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. What a wonderful promise that is. We're all part of the family of God. Not only are we brothers and sisters in Christ, we're brothers and sisters with Jesus. And not only brothers and sisters with Jesus, we are the bride of Jesus. And he is the bridegroom. Listen, his righteousness, the reason we can say that today, it's his righteousness in me. It's not my righteousness. In fact, as you know, according to Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness are like filthy rags before the Lord. We don't have any righteousness. Only Jesus is righteous. And we're saints because of what he's done, not what we've done. Hebrews 10.10 says, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering he's perfected forever those, perfected forever for those who are being sanctified. Did you notice that word, are being? You know what that means? We, We haven't arrived yet. Do you know that every day, It's a process of salvation. Every day is a new day. Every day the potter, God himself, is trying to mold us and make us. And sometimes he knocks off a piece and we say, oh, that hurts. But the potter says, oh, it's got to hurt because i got to mold you and make you more like Jesus. Every day. Every day. Philippians 2.12, when Paul says we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, it doesn't mean that we work for our salvation. But what that means is, that we are continually being worked on by God to bring our salvation to completion. You say, well, when, Pastor, when am I going to be complete? When you see Jesus face to face. That's when your salvation will be complete. So if today you need Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to follow Christ today, I will tell you that's just the beginning because every day is different. How many of you can testify? I know that you can. As you can say, Pastor, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'm different today because I've been sanctified by God every day. Right? All of us can. Right? We're learning more. We're growing more. We're maturing more. And every day is different. So every day when you wake up, get to know the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Get to know the Jesus of the Bible. Get to know him. And as you get to know him, you're going to grow closer and closer to him. And every day, the potter is going to mold that clay a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Until one day, when we see him face to face, we will be completed. And his work will be completed in us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The fact is that as followers of Jesus, 
though we sin, though we are tempted, though we fail, the positional truth of our new nature is holiness. Did you know that? Holiness, righteousness, sainthood. By the way, the Catholics would have my head today if I said to them, all of you are saints of the living God. They'd, they'd be blown away by that. But if you know Christ today, if you follow Jesus, you're a saint. So remind your wife, honey, when you do something wrong, I'm a saint of God. And wives, remind your husband, when they do something wrong, which I'm sure is very, very little, if I roll my eyes one more time, they're going to get stuck. Remind him, I'm a saint of God. Right? Righteousness has been bestowed upon all of us. And those that brotherhood with Christ began after the cross. You remember before the cross, we weren't brothers with Christ. We weren't sisters with Christ. But we, we, we were enemies of God, in fact, before the cross. Romans 5.10 says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having to be reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Amen. Long before Ruth Graham, wife of Dr. Billy Graham, became sick, she was driving along a highway through a construction zone, carefully following the detours and mile-by-mile cautionary signs. She came to the last one that read, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. She arrived home and told Dr. Graham and her family what she had seen. And she said, when I die, I want those words engraved on my tombstone. She even wrote it down so her family wouldn't forget it. And sure enough, when she took her last breath of earthly air and her first breath of heavenly air on June the 14th, 2007, those words are now engraved on her tombstone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. I was thinking about that this week. And when I come to my the end of my earthly life, I want the church to know. Church, end of construction. And thank you for your patience in dealing with a pastor that's not always perfect, that has struggles like you do, and still struggles with things. Thank you for your patience in advance. Now, Jesus is our all in all because he's our conqueror over sin. And as much then, in verse 14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. How did he share in the same? He became man, right? God became man. Jesus' only begotten son became man. And that word is from the word kononia, meaning to have fellowship, communion, or partnership. And in your bulletin, it says the word share. Um, you can just blot that out and put the word partaken. I like that word better. Because it, it means in connection with Jesus, Jesus came in the flesh literally to take hold of something that he did not have any idea what it was all about until he came, right? He, he was never man until he came in flesh. And we certainly could not take on his divine nature, right? So he had to take on our nature that really wasn't a part of who he was. And then he goes on to say that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And it is obvious today that Satan's power over us had to be broken, right? 
It had to be broken. And Satan's primary power over mankind is death. And Jesus had to die to become our conqueror over Satan. By the way, I want you to understand something. As a follower of Jesus, you should not be fearful of death. You should not worry about taking your final breath. You see, because Jesus not just died, he didn't just die on the cross, but three days later he rose again from the dead. And if he says, I live and you live also, you need to believe in that. We shouldn't have any fear. Now, it doesn't mean that this afternoon I'm going out on 181 and standing before a truck and saying, hit me. That's what I'm talking about, right? We're to live our life that God has given us in the fullest and, and living it for, for whatever God has for us. But listen, when the time comes, don't you be fearful, but instead be looking forward to your final breath because when you take your final breath of earthly air, you will take your first breath of heavenly air and you will be in his presence and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, look forward to that. If you, if you love this world more than you love the world to come, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. I'm going to tell you, we, we live in a, in a horrible world. We live in a world that's crumbling every day. We live in a world that's discouraging, that brings grief, that brings depression. But we're going to a place one day where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more separation. There will be no more pain. I like that one. Right? Jesus stomped Satan into the ground. And when he did, he took death away from Satan as something he could hold over our heads. And he gave us life. You say, when does eternal life start? I'll tell you when it starts. When you follow Jesus. That's when eternal life starts. Your eternal life started. You're, if, you, if you have followed Jesus, if you say, I'm a Christian today, that's when your eternal life started. The day that you said, I'm, I'm, from there on out, we're going to live forever. We're going to live forever. You see, God had a weapon much more powerful, and that was an empty grave. And with it, Jesus destroyed death. Because I live, you shall live also. Death no longer has us in bondage of fear. But listen, it simply releases us into the presence of Jesus. Pretty simple. Listen, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do it this morning. I want you to sing with me this wonderful, wonderful song. Because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. What a song. What a promise. Take those words with you this week. And finally, in closing, Jesus is our all in all because he is our sympathizer. 
I like Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, as the author finishes this chapter, these, these verses, when he says, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? Father Abraham. Right? We are. We are. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He had to be made like us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation, there's that word again, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now who's he talking about? Us. He's talking about us. Those of us who know Christ. Those of us who are followers of Jesus today. And the fact is that Jesus came to help the reconciled when we are tempted. To overcome the temptation and not sin against God. Now we're not 100% perfect all the time, are we? But sometimes you feel the strength of God on you. You feel the Holy Spirit leading you. You feel the, you feel the strength and power of God in you. You say, no, Satan, I'm not going there. But even if we fail, God's always able to pick us up, dust us off. As we repent from our sins, he dusts us off and sends us back on the way, on the pathway of the journey of life. That's what God does. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen to these words. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, who's he talking about? Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Did you hear that? But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace and to help us in a time of need. I love that verse. And here's a fact. Jesus knows when we're hurt. Jesus knows when we're suffering. Jesus knows when we're weak. Jesus knows when we're sick. Jesus knows when we are tempted. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Here's what it says. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Understand this today. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Right now, right today, he's praying for you. You see, he's our great sympathizer because he understands our weaknesses. He became man when he didn't have to become man. But our God became man so that he could understand where we are weak and where we fail. And listen, God is with us today. And he is praying. Jesus is up there praying for you. Oh, God, help that preacher. I don't know what he's preaching. But help him today. Oh, God, help that person today. He's, he's one of mine. She's one of mine. Help him today. Help him today. And with God's help and with Jesus praying for us and with him understanding our weaknesses more than we even understand our own weaknesses, our God Jesus is, all our all, is our all in all because he is our sympathizer. We can say this morning, can we not, 
Hallelujah, what a Savior we serve. Hallelujah, there's absolutely no doubt that it's my Jesus who is our all in all. It's your Jesus who is all in all. Give him praise today because he is our God. And because he is our all in all, we can go to heaven one day and we can know that, know that we know that death has no hold on us any longer. We're just waiting for the time when God calls us home. I wonder today, if you're here, you've heard the gospel. You're here this morning. And let me tell you that your sins have separated you from God. He said, I don't feel like that that's happened. Yes, that's what's happened. Because you see, God is a holy God. And because he's holy, he demands a payment for your sins. Won't you give your life to Christ today? Won't you follow Jesus? Won't you make him your Lord and your Savior? He wants to be. Listen, Jesus, we know, he doesn't wish any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, right? And you're here today and you say, well, I, I know more about it than God does. Really? Okay. So walk out of here then and know more about it than God does. But don't leave this place this morning without knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior.